Boy Mets fans, welcome to episode 256? 57, I think. Sure. Somewhere in there, Mason <laughs> Avenue Audio. Uh, I am Brian Salvatore. With me is Chris McShane. We are standing behind section 129 in City Field at the last Mets home game of the season. They are currently up 3 1 against the Atlanta Braves. Robert Gazelman is pitching a decent game. Uh, six hits he's given up so far. Um, how you doing, Chris? Yeah, I'm good. I mean, uh, it's nice to be here. Something I've been saying for the last few days is they're terrible, but I'm going to miss them. Uh, and and it's, it's going to be out here. It's strange. It feels like a very summery night. It does not feel like the baseball season's over. It doesn't feel like I'm going to be watching a Rangers game next week that means something. Um, right. To the extent that NHL games mean something in the regular season. Right, <laughs> right, right. That's up for debate. Right. I mean, when your team is good... You're all right, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like the end of the season, uh, temperature-wise, humidity-wise. But the lineup, sure as hell, looks like the end of a season. As you know, I walked in, <laughs> I did not know who was playing right field because the big uh, board that has the lineup just has City Field playing right field because they don't <laughs> they don't have a Travis Tyrone uh, giant baseball card yet. Yeah, and maybe they never will. I... <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> No offense to uh, no, no offense, Travis. He's a good, good dude, but you know, right? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, no, it's it's uh, it's the the ultimate lame duckness of, of Terry Collins. I actually, I'm hoping that, and it, there are more people here than I thought. Agreed. It's, it's still not many, but I'm hoping that people, if the Mets win and come out, I assume they'll, you know, come around, tour, tour, give a little bit of a goodbye. I hope Terry Collins, whatever your thoughts on him. Uh, you know, I hope he gets a nice send-off. Yeah. He did He did stick out some terrible years. I mean, he thinks he's coming back. Well, he, in some capacity. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he stuck out some terrible years. He managed a team that won a penance. Uh, yes, only a couple managers can say that. Right. So it's... Is it all just operating... him, Bobby Valentine, Yogi, and... Uh, and... Uh, who managed 69? I know this. Hodges. Hodges, yes, thank you. <laughs> is that it? Right? Uh, for a pennant team? Yeah, oh, Willie Randolph. No, almost. No, no. He was one win away. Yeah, you yeah. said David Johnson, right? I did say David, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, those are the... Yeah, Bobby, Davey, Yogi, and... Uh, Terry. And Terry. All right, so and, the next and, manager has to have a, a, a E sound at the end of their name. Well, except for Gil. Yeah, well... <laughs> Gilly? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure somebody called him Gilly. <laughs> Right? Sure, why not? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we're here with a couple of Mets fans. We're going to bring them into the conversation in just a minute. Uh, thank you for coming out tonight. This is super fun to have folks come out. This was really nice. Um, so, you know, we're here at the last game of the season. Uh, neither one of us got the home run apple ice cream bowl we were hoping to get. No, we did not. <laughs> um, we're both on our second or third beer of the, uh, of the evening. Yes. We're enjoying a nice night of Mets baseball. I guess since we're here, what was your Mets highlight 2017, Chris? Um, well, we spent a whole podcast on it, but finally seeing PNC Park and seeing the Mets there. <laughs> we just spent an entire podcast on Pittsburgh, yeah. So I, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll make that, that, that's truly number one. That was the highlight of, of my Mets season. Uh, in terms of the Mets actually having hope, 
what were they, like 7-3 and three at some point, right? Weren't they 7-3? Yeah, three? they had a really good run there for a bit. So, baseball-wise, I guess the highlight of my season was probably when either when the record was that good, uh, and I forget if this, I, I think it was a little bit a- later in April, but when Syndergaard refused the MRI and went out and was throwing 101 and dominating, those like one or two innings that he did that before he hurt the lap, uh, those two innings when he was just like, screw it, shoving. Yeah. I know what I'm doing, I'm throwing 101 miles an hour, I'm great. That I think that was the peak for me. Uh, I, and then, and then, and then the complete opposite. Of that. I didn't give up on the season for quite a while longer, uh, as regular listeners yes, know. We know you're the optimist, yeah. But I did give up. Like, I think I gave up before the trade deadline. Oh yeah. So yeah. Uh, I think for me, it was the realization that Conforto was for real, because Conforto had that great 2015 and had a rough 2016, and seeing him this year put it together, and you know, just just hitting opposite field bombs and just you know. Really looking like a quality major leaguer was such a highlight. And then, of course, that all comes crashing down when he misses a ball swinging and, you know, yep. fucks up his shoulder for possibly forever. <laughs> so, you know. We hope not. But we hope but not, possibly. but, you know, possibly, you know. Yeah. So, we're, we're going to bring in some of the riffraff here. Hey, hey gentlemen. Gentlemen. <laughs> gentlemen. Come over here for a moment. So, uh, we, uh, Chris and I just discussed our... Our Mets highlight of 2017. So, so we're going to go around here and ask everybody what their Met highlight of 2017 is. We're going to start with uh, with, with Rob, our another our Mason Avenue compatriot here. Uh, what was your highlight of 2017? Oh my! Um, well, uh, probably Jacob Degrom's complete game against the Cubs. Uh, I came here with an inordinate number of Cub fans, uh, so to actually win a game against a good team and seeing the wonderful Mr. Degrom. Uh, go the distance was one of the rare bright spots that I encountered at City Field this year. We're going to split up the robs for a second here. Liam, what was your uh, highlight of 2017? Before the season. <laughs> All right. Wait, 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 hold on. I, I think Liam's highlight of the season was the first time we had a gathering at City Field. That was a low light. <laughs> We had fun. We had fun. All right. Uh, they're giving out some T-shirts, but we don't really care at this point, I guess. Um, Mr. Met flipping the bird, a highlight of 2017. Mr. Met flipping the bird was a highlight of 2017, I would say. Yes, that was... Uh, I have t-shirts. What? I have T-shirts to give away. Oh, you have T-shirts to give away. Who oh. wears a medium? Who wears a medium T-shirt? Or knows somebody who likes the Mets who wears a medium? Hey, you wear a medium? I can't think of one. No, no, no. Do you, you wear a medium T-shirt? Large. Large? Does anybody? I can't even give them away. Can't even give away T-shirts. I can, I can try. I can try. That's right. All right here's depressing Daniel Murphy T-shirt. Uh, <laughs> I'll give the other one to Will. We'll wait for him to come back. Sorry. Continue. Continue, continue the podcast. All right. So, um, Rob, what was your highlight of uh, 2017 for the Mets? Yeah, I wish it was later in the season, but uh, early on the season, I think it was the first or second weekend, I came to a Sunday night game with my son and my wife to watch Noah Syndergaard pitch. He pitched a great game, Mets won, my son couldn't have been happier, and that was probably the highlight of the season, which it, says a lot about the season, unfortunately. But, yeah. April, right? April, <laughs> it was April. It was I April. understand. <laughs> Andy? 
Uh, it's got to be DeGrom winning 15 games and getting to 200 innings. Uh, that's actually two moments, but I think those are the ones for me. Okay, sure. Jimmy, highlight of the season? I uh, can't think of something right now. Can't think of anything? <laughs> no highlights? I mean, I guess that's a pretty indicative statement of the uh, of the Mets season. The finger was the low light. Mr. Megaman's finger is the low light? I don't know, man. I think Conforto injuring himself on a swing. That's a pretty low light. Uh, Syndergaard hurting his lat. Um, well, that's the most memorable moment of the year for me. It was my son's birthday party. A friend of mine came into the birthday party to say, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but Noah Syndergaard left holding his shoulder. I was like, wow. That is unfortunately the most memorable moment. Wow. Flores bang the ball up his nose. Flores breaking his nose is pretty crazy, too. Yeah. No Eric Campbell. <laughs> that's true. No Eric Campbell is a highlight of the season, for sure. I appreciate that very much. We got Phil Evans instead. Nick Evans. Oh. Phil Evans. Who? Who? Phil Evans. So yeah, it, it's been it's been a weird year. Um, it's it's definitely been. A, I feel like this is a year that early on there were indicators it was not going to be a good year, but all of us were trying to believe. We were trying to be optimists, and then I know Chris tried more than all of us. Was Chris is the eternal yeah. optimist. But at a certain point, you know, it just became a lost season. But I'll say this. I think we got an understanding this year that Conforto, if healthy, is for real. We saw just how good DeGrom and Syndergaard can be. You know, we knew that already, but extra data never hurts those sort of things. Rosario has been as good as advertised. Um, Nimmo's been a good surprise, pleasant surprise. Nimmo has been a pleasant surprise, for sure. Uh, You know, it's... It hasn't been a totally lost season. Majority lost, sure. Not a totally lost season, though. Um, so, so let's all get really optimistic here for a second. We got Addison Reed for nothing. All right, well, we, we gave away a lot of guys for nothing, but, but, but we'll see. But Reed does hurt. Uh, so who is your guy's number one uh, free agent you want the Mets to go for? Just, just shout him out. Shohei. Money's no object. Just, yeah, we're, we're playing a game here. J.D. Martinez. J.D. Martinez, okay. J.D. Martinez. J.D.? Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn, okay. Shohei. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit more in future episodes, uh-huh. but uh, I think Alex Cobb, for his, his talent, he's not the most durable pitcher. We, I'll go more into detail later. Uh, yeah, we have plenty of time for that, Chris. <laughs> yes, but Alex Cobb. Is like my guy who I think could fit the team and be useful. Okay. Yeah, Chris and I were talking about it, and we, we decided that two innings eaters would be really, really important. Yes. But that's not one pick. No, I would I would say R.A. Dickey just because. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not, right? He will eat innings. He will be delightful. <laughs> or Bartolo. Hey. Bay or former Bay? Either one I'm cool with. So. I'd sign up for RA right now. Yes. So I turned 30 the night after Santana pitched his no hitter. So I came to the game on my 30th birthday, but I was here for an RA Dickey complete game. And that's, you know, not quite as good, but, you know, I love RA Dickey. You know, he, he's the best. So, yeah, I'm hoping for a Dickey reunion. I think he'd be very useful, and he's a great quote. Right. And as somebody who writes about the Mets, it would be nice to have some good quotes for once to talk about. So if things go wrong, at least we have the good quotes. Exactly, yes, yes. Well, he's entertaining. Guy, good yes, he's very entertaining. Yeah, exactly. And he's a, he's a guy to root for. Chris and I have talked a lot about having 
issue with rooting for guys who have, you know, either like domestic abuse issues, yeah, you know. Yeah, so, you know, I, mean, I do love Norioki coming out to Ghostbusters. That is great. But, um, you know, having a, a really legitimately good guy in Dickie to root for doesn't hurt. So, well. Our new old friend. Exactly, yeah. Well, I think we're just about done here, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But uh, we, we still have a full show. Stay tuned for segments from Aaron and Steve and Brian and Kate. So uh, we'll talk to you next week. Yeah, we will. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Steve Seiper. And this week I'm not going to be talking about minor league baseball. I'm barely going to even be talking about baseball, really. In 2016, Colin Kaepernick sat and he took a knee during the national anthem to protest police brutality and the overt and institutional racism against African Americans in the United States. Since then, a variety of football players have done the same, and this past weekend, A's rookie catcher Bruce Maxwell took a knee during the national anthem before Oakland A's Texas Rangers game, and he was the first baseball player to join in on the protest. Sports is a huge medium for social change, and it's a bit telling, I guess, where baseball is in today's society, that football is where all this is taking place and not baseball. Uh, baseball is America's pastime. Ratings are down. They're trying to institute all these stupid things to liven it up and attract more viewers or whatever, but football ratings are up, and the NFL is more profitable and popular than ever. But then again, uh, the percentage of African Americans in baseball this year is 7.1%, whereas the NFL, it's something like 70%. So it does make sense that something that's affecting African Americans would be felt more and be more relevant to the NFL than the MLB. But going back to all the way before the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, if you weren't white, the United States was a crappy place to live, especially in the South. Better than a lot of other places, yeah, but it was still crappy nonetheless. The law was passed uh, in 1964 thanks to tremendous protests and pressure on the part of numerous protesters and activists and demonstrators. And in 1963, when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech in front of the Lincoln Memorial, um, there was one individual among many who was standing next to him, and that guy was Jack Roosevelt Robinson. In uh, 1947, Jackie Robinson broke down the gentleman's agreement that Cap Anson uh, helped establish back in the 1880s. He hit 297, 383, 427 with 12 homers and 29 stolen bases in his first season, and he basically kicked down that door. He'd uh, go on to have a career batting line of 311, 409, 474, with 137 homers, 197 stolen bases, and a well above uh, average defense for most of his career. And then he finally retired in 1957 after a 10-year career. Um, after that shit hit O'Malley, he went to Los Angeles, and he tried to trade Jackie to the Giants, who are now San Francisco, not York, New York, but he uh, refused. But after he retired, Robinson didn't basically fade into retired life. Um, he remained a beacon for millions of black people during his playing days, and he continued advocating for them afterwards. 
Uh, he struck up a friendship with Martin Luther King. The two of them corresponded. They brainstormed. They marched together. King called him a, quote, a pilgrim that walked in the lonesome byways towards the high road of freedom. He was a sit-inner before sit-ins, a freedom rider before freedom rides. In a telegram, he told Don Newcomb, who was another Dodgers great of the late 40s and 50s golden era, quote, You'll never know how easy you and Jackie and Doby, Larry Doby, and Campy, Roy Campanella, made it for me to do my job by what you guys did on the baseball field. Robinson is famous for, quote, not having the courage to fight, but for having the courage not to fight. But uh, as the 40s transitioned into the 50s, Robinson became more outspoken. He jawed with umpires more. He had no problem dishing back the guff that opposing players gave him. And as his career started winding down, he started speaking out more and more on the plight of African Americans in America, the things that he had to deal with and the things that he was still dealing with. When he retired, he became a speaker, and he famously ended his speeches by saying, quote, If I had to choose tomorrow between the Baseball Hall of Fame and full citizenship of my people, I would choose full citizenship time and time again. He used his celebrity status to lobby politicians. He became a board member of the NAACP. He co-founded the Freedom National Bank, which is a commercial bank in Harlem that catered to the community. He founded the Jackie Robinson Construction Company, which helped build housing for low-income families. Uh, As the famous Jackie Robinson quote goes, a life is not important except in the impact that it has on others. And Jackie Robinson certainly touched and impacted millions. And this is why I get so angry when I hear people talk crap about the Jackie Robinson rotunda at City Field. People complain it's a shrine to Fred Wilpon's lost youth of the Dodgers and blah, 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 whatever. You know, shut the hell up. Jackie Robinson is an American hero. He had his faults like we all do, but he is in the pantheon of American heroes in the truest sense of the word. Uh, It was long before my time, of course, and I can pretty much guarantee that anyone who's listening right now, uh, it was long long, long before their time, too. But that doesn't change the fact that as New Yorkers, as Americans, this is part of our heritage. And for all you Brooklynites out there like me, we have an even deeper connection since it was just happening in our borough. American society was forever changed on April 15, 1947, at 1720 Bedford Avenue, when Jackie Robinson took the field. America's pastime jump-started the fight for equality. So, with everything going on with Kaepernick and the NFL, and hopefully more baseball players joining in, and athletes from other sports, it's hard not to see the parallels. So, I just want to end this with a few quotes from Robinson that are still applicable today as they were back then in the 60s. The right of every American to first-class citizenship is the most important issue of our time. I don't think that I or any other Negro as an American citizen should have to ask for anything that is rightfully his. We are demanding that we just be given the things that are rightfully ours and that we're not looking for anything else. Civil rights is not by any means the only issue that concerns me, nor, I think, any other Negro. As Americans, we have as much at stake in this country as anyone else. But since effective participation in a democracy is based upon enjoyment of basic freedoms that everyone else takes for granted, we need to make no apologies for being especially interested in catching up on civil rights. 
I won't have made it until the most underprivileged Negro in Mississippi can live in equal dignity with anyone else in America. Life is not a spectator sport. If you're going to spend your whole life in the grandstand just watching what goes on, in my opinion, you're wasting your life. Negroes aren't seeking anything which is not good for the nation as well as ourselves. In order for America to be 100% strong, economically, defensively, and morally, we cannot afford to waste of having second- and third-class citizens. I believe in the goodness of a free society, and I believe that society can remain good only as long as we're willing to fight for it, and to fight against whatever imperfections may exist. This is Aaron York from Amazing Avenue Audio, for Amazing Avenue Audio, and um, and this is the last edition of Amazing Avenue Audio for the regular season, so that's kind of sad, but the Mets are ready to, they have been ready for a while now, to move forward with the offseason and try to get this franchise back on track for 2018, and already some of the more major, major Changes for next year are in motion as reports have come out saying the Mets are not going to renew Terry Collins' contract when the manager's current deal expires at the end of this year. It also looks like they're going to cut ties with pitching coach Dan Warden. Both guys are are really important, have been really important members of this of this franchise and big parts of the 2015 National League pennant that it seems like it was a really long time ago. It was just two seasons ago and the Mets are just one year removed from another postseason berth when they won the the top National League wildcard spot in 2016, only to lose to the Giants. But uh, Terry Collins has been a controversial figure, at least at least among Mets fans. He's he's really said most of the right things when it comes to his press conferences and stuff, and avoid avoided controversy in the in the papers. Unlike some other managers we've seen put their their foot in their mouths. Terry's been pretty mild-mannered. There was that blow-up when, when a reporter earlier this year asked him how he felt about uh, Noah Syndergaard's injury, and he was trying to keep a straight face, and it was a very, very minor blow-up. But but mostly, Collins has, has been pretty even-keeled, and and the controversy from fans comes from some of the more questionable moves he's made, his, his bullpen management, and... The moves he made, he makes in games. He once he once didn't challenge a play at the end of the game. That that really was a was a no risk that could have gone the Mets way that he should have had looked at. But the 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 point the point is this guy has been he's been the head of a team that reached the postseason twice in a row, and and this is a franchise that doesn't doesn't do that too often. Uh, they they didn't do it. That was the first time in two thousand five two thousand six. The first time they reached the postseason in two straight seasons since 1999 and 2000. So, so Collins did great things, and for for him to leave the franchise, he is the oldest manager in baseball. But he just told the Bergen Record that hey, he wants to be in baseball next year. He's not ready to retire, but it looks like the Mets are ready to move on without him. So, it's an interesting decision. It it seems like him and general manager Sandy Alderson don't seem eye to eye all the time. It seems like ownership is more on the side of Alderson when it comes to this. 
And perhaps this is good for the Mets because they'll move in a more analytical direction with their manager. Bob Guerin is, has been mentioned as a top candidate. He's currently the bench coach with the Dodgers, who are very, very numbers-oriented. And he used to be with the Mets, so he's familiar with the organization. The organization is familiar with him. So I think that would be a move that would be popular with a lot of people. But it still doesn't mean that Collins deserves to be let go, although deserves isn't really answer really the answer when his contract isn't expiring so is expiring, so the team doesn't really have to fire him, but they kind of are are firing him after just one lousy season in which everything that could go wrong did go wrong for the Mets in twenty seventeen. For pitching coach Dan Worthen, it's also interesting because this guy got so much credit for the Mets strong pitching staffs with Noah Syndergaard, Jacob deGrom, Matt Harvey, when it seemed like the Mets were on top of the world in 2015. Stephen Matz, of course, also part of that conversation. A lot of credit was going to Dan Worthen, the, the slider he was teaching these guys. Uh, but now that everyone's gotten hurt, it seems like the organization has cooled on him. Maybe they think that him that this slider is the, is the cause or part of the cause of some of these arm injuries. I'm not sure. But it is interesting to see them take such an approach with the pitching coach after he was getting just praise was being piled on him during the past couple seasons when the pitching staff was the strength of the organization. So the times are changing for, for the Mets, as we'll see. Terry Collins, maybe he'll be a manager somewhere else. Uh, maybe he won't. I would kind of be surprised just because of his age if he popped up as a uh, as a manager for another major league team next year. I would also be surprised if he wasn't in baseball at all. I think he'll be doing something, but well, everyone thought Willie Randolph was going to get another job after he was let go by the Mets, and and he, w- he was a bench coach, but he, he never got another manager role. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with Terry Collins. I Personally, I thought he was, he was a, a good manager. The two... The two postseason runs the Mets did go on. There were points in the season where where all but the most diehard fans had given up. The Mets were down and out. It didn't look like they could score a run, and yet, and the team never gave up. and And Collins has to has to be a big part of that. He's the major motivator on that team. He's the guy that that it seems like all the players respect, and he has to get credit for those teams picking themselves up by their bootstraps and and turning them around. But form a more tangible standpoint there are moves that a lot of people disagreed with there was the bullpen that was was constantly overbooked and you could blame Collins for that you could blame the fact that there weren't too many guys he could turn to I know we all wanted Hansel Robles to be an important part of the of the bullpen in this year and in the future and that that just didn't work out and when you have a guy that you really want to push and it just and it's just not working it you have to rely on on your stronger guys so that's me being a Terry Collins apologist. Certainly he could do better in the bullpen area, in the in the pinch hitting and just game management in general, but he was a he was a steady hand guiding this this team to a lot of success that that uh the Mets had not seen in a while when 2015 rolled around. So so I I would like to see him back, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but the Mets there's still a lot of really uh, good candidates they can hire. So this doesn't have to be a negative thing. 
it, uh, it can be the Mets moving in the right direction and getting a manager that's a better fit for the organization and for the front office. So hopefully the Mets are wise this offseason and they are able to make a good hire and it helps the team perform better next year. This has been Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio. Nineteen seventy-three was a year to believe, and as we watch a season that defies belief, it's comforting to look back at a meaningful stretch run in the five greatest regular season games from the team's second pennant-winning season. At number five, it's September twenty-fifth against the Montreal Expos at Shea Stadium. As New York's current baseball heroes were aiming for playoff glory, a New York legend for all time was reaching the finish line of his wondrous voyage. Willie Mays, 42 years of age and a couple years past the edge of his prime, had announced he'd retire at season's end. As was richly deserved, a pregame ceremony involved visits from luminaries and concluded with the farewell speech from the honoree. The Say Hey Kid would say goodbye to America, as he put it, on this night, but fans all over the country would get a few more glimpses in the coming weeks, so long as the rest of the Mets did their part. Cleon Jones obliged by doing his best Mays impersonation. At the plate with a sixth-inning home run that gave the Mets a 2-1 lead, and then, with Montreal runners on first and second, ranging over to the left-center field gap to haul in a potential hit to end the top of the seventh and preserve said lead. Those plays most satisfied Jerry Kuzman and Tug McGraw. The lefty tandem combined to hold Montreal to seven hits and one run. An even better result came in Pittsburgh, as the Phillies topped the Pirates and put the Mets one and a half games ahead of the Bucks. On to number four, and a September 18th showdown with the Pittsburgh Pirates. The hot potato pennant race was playing right into the Mets' hands. Improved health got them on the fast track during the season stretch run, while their main NLE's competition still had its respective legs in quicksand. With no club able to pull away from one another, the Mets couldn't have picked a better time to shore up and heat up. And against the team leading this slothful chase, New York could make this tight divisional fight even more constricted. John Matlack's one bad inning, the fourth, gave the impression it was one bad inning too many. The 4-1 lead the Pirates grabbed from that frame held up behind starter Bob Moose and reliever Roberto Hernandez, about to ensure the Mets would lose the second straight of a four-game home-and-home series that would ultimately determine their aspiring postseason fate. But just like the season itself, the Mets came to life late. The third consecutive one-out hit came off the choked-up bat of Felix Mion. His triple made it 4-3. to three. Four straight Mets reached base after that, with a Ron Hodges RBI single and a Don Hahn 2-RBI hit canceling out Pittsburgh's lead and propelling New York ahead. Bob Apodaca, though, almost gave it back. He walked Gene Kleins, he walked Milt May, he then walked off the mound, supplanted by Buzz Capra. A bunt and a grounder closed the gap, and two free passes enhanced heart rates. But Manny Sanguian flied out to Cleon Jones with two on, and the divisional jumble got even tighter. With less than two weeks to play, five teams were separated by five games. For the Mets, two and a half games, and two teams separated themselves from the Bucks. Now to number three, 
a July 17th comeback in Atlanta against the Braves. Just over a week earlier, on July 9th, the Mets were 34-46, and in 6th place in a 6-team division, 12.5 out of 1st. Team chairman M. Donald Grant held a pep talk with the players, highlighted by Tug McGraw spontaneously blurting out his famous line, You gotta believe. A hopeful Yogi Berra later had a line of his own, one of his greatest pearls of wisdom, it ain't over till it's over. Yogi, of course, was referring to the division race, but he could well have been talking about his own managerial fate. That phrase could also be useful in describing the mid-July thriller down south. Before McGraw and everyone around him would be a true believer, he appeared to be throwing away any suspense. Not yet in the groove he would enter over the season's final months, Tug got a change of scenery in a starting role, only to struggle through six innings. The Braves, leading 7-1 entering the top of the ninth, were threatening to drive the sinking Mets further into submission. Carl Morton's easy drive to a complete game went under siege behind the clout of Rusty Staub and John Milner. Following those homers, which brought it to 7-5 and the end of the day for Morton, it was a walk and four singles, each with two outs that overtook the Braves. The last and most crucial of those hits came from the wizardry of Willie Mays' magic wand. Hit number 3,271 brought home Jim Beecham for the tie and Ted Martinez for the win. Fighting to salvage a winning record and hoping to clinch the division, scenarios that are almost always mutually exclusive, the Mets had overtaken their five National League East foes, but with one series left, the division lead was tenuous come October 1st in Chicago. Four teams were separated by three and a half games. Even the Cubs, sitting one spot from the cellar, were mathematically alive at four games back. Sweeping New York, and getting help elsewhere, was essential. This was not a time for patience, although Mother... This was not a time for patience, although Mother Nature wasn't a leaving tension. Two days of rainouts compressed the four-game set into consecutive Wrigley Field doubleheaders, beginning on Sunday, September 30th. With crowd turnout low, it didn't cater to a pennant race-type atmosphere. The Mets might have been playing down to the level of their environment when they failed to score off Rick Rushell and Bob Locker, making John Matlack a hard-luck 1-0 loser in the opener. The offense redeemed itself later with the 9-2 win and a Jerry Kuzman complete game. Chicago was officially eliminated. Monday's scheduled twin bill was a standalone affair, as the rest of Major League Baseball had already wrapped up its schedule. All that was left was to see how the topsy-turvy NL East race would shake out. Cleon Jones' second-inning home run was his sixth over the past ten games. The Mets added to that lead with two in the fourth, two in the fifth, and one in the seventh to build a 6-2 to advantage for Tom Seaver. But as the eventual Cy Young winner tired... He gave way to 1973's late-year catalyst. Tug McGraw didn't save games. He saved the season. And when he got Glenn Becker to pop softly to John Milner, who then stepped on first to double off Ken Rudolph running from first for a game-ending double play, he ensured that the season would continue. Game number 162 was then canceled. With the final record of 82 wins and 79 losses, the Mets had the lowest winning percentage of any pennant or division winner in Major League history. 
if there's ever been a division, league, or World Series champion that did so without a touch of good fortune, it's yet to be seen. A rabbit's foot can be as much of a useful tool as a hot bat, arm, or glove. For these Mets, such a charm came into being this night, September 20th, against a team they were just one and a half games behind for leadership of the NFC East, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it's the number one regular season game from 1973. That good luck charm wasn't applied when Duffy Dyer doubled in the tying run with two outs in the ninth, nor did it reveal itself when Ron Hodges won the game with an RBI hit in the bottom of the 13th. Instead, destiny rose to the forefront in the top of that inning, confirming that, perhaps, remnants of 1969's magic was still lurking inside Shea Stadium's confines. With two outs and Richie Sisk on first, Dave Augustine hits one destined for the Mets' bullpen, except that its trajectory sent it squarely off the top of the left center field fence and back into play. Cleon Jones catches it off the fortunate bounce, turns, and throws to the cutoff man Wayne Garrett, while Sisk, the potential go-ahead run, rounds third and heads home. Garrett fires to Hodges, perched at the plate, who then catches and lays down the tag on a sliding Sisk in plenty of time. Home plate umpire John McSherry, after waiting a few moments to confirm, elevates his hands into a closed fist, side retired, and the ball on the wall play is born. Roughly 24 hours later, the Mets completed a series sweep of the Pirates and completed their climb from the cellar to the top of the National League East. That's all for this list. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter, at BrianWright86. Congratulations on surviving another miserable Met season. It's almost over. We're like three days out. It's fine. It's close enough to over that I can say that we survived it. Because we did. And, I mean, most of the Mets didn't. Most of them, I don't even, they're all injured. It's fine. But this season is as close to over as we're going to get. And it's done. And it's over. And there's nothing to panic about anymore. Because the offseason is going to be whatever it is. And Terry Collins might be fired. Or he might stay in the organization. He might stay in baseball. And today we got that they're probably going to get rid of Dan Worthen. And everyone loves the Worthen slider. There has been there have been rumors in the air for long enough. That that's part of the reason why pitchers keep getting hurt. I don't know if it's true. I don't know if that's a tidy excuse. I don't know the reason. They're going to replace him with someone. I don't know if it's going to be good. I don't know who they're going to replace Terry Collins with. If they're going to replace Terry Collins. But the season is over. And there's going to be nonsense in the offseason. Because there always is. But we don't have to watch Mets baseball again for a few months. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Mason Avenue Audio. Thank you for joining us on our live adventure. We had a lot of fun. Thanks to all of our friends who came out to hang out with us that night. We're definitely going to do this a couple more times next season. So uh, next time it happens, come on out. We'll have a lot of fun, I promise. Well, I'll have fun. I can't promise for you. Anyway, as always, please go to AmazingAvenue.com to check out all sorts of Mets-related goodness. 
as the postseason happens, we will be posting lots of rumors, free agent profiles, season and review pieces, all sorts of stuff to keep your Mets fandom alive during the offseason. After that, you know, spring training, hope springs eternal, etc., etc. But uh, we'll be there for all of it, so please come by and hang out with us there. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Amazing Avenue. You can download this show, the show you're listening to right now, directly from blogtalkradio.com or find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. Please rate, review, and subscribe it in Apple Podcasts if you want to be a pal. We really do appreciate that. And you can find all of our contributors on uh, Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Steve is at Steve Saipa. Aaron's at Aaron P. York. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. And Brian is at Brian Wright 86. So um, this does it for the regular season of Amazing Avenue Audio. We will be here throughout the uh, off season, But uh, until next year, let's go Mets.